So we're going to try to get through uh, World War I, the Great Depression, and World War II in less than an hour. At the start of the 1900s, there was extreme optimism that science would lead to utopia on Earth. They thought scientific progress was a one-way street. It's just going to keep marching forward, eliminating disease. There were several societies devoted to peace. Nobel had, in his will, made provisions for the Nobel Prize to be given. The Olympic Games were uh, revived in 1896 as a symbol of how nations were now cooperating and they were only going to fight in sport and not in real life. There was a book that came out, I think, sometime shortly after 1910 that said, war is no longer a threat to our existence because all of these nations are so economically interdependent that war would be catastrophic. And so people are so aware of that, no one's going to break the deal and start a war. However, there were some warning signs. Nationalism was becoming a huge problem in that this was now their new god. So rather than being a nation under God, you were a proud Frenchman, or you were a proud German, or you were a proud Englishman. And that started becoming the motivating, the driving force. And along with that came a hatred and a distrust for other nationalities. Nations were using the Industrial Revolution to build up their military strength at a quite a scary pace. There was imperialism, which was causing people to butt heads over some of their colony areas, like happened in the Boer War, which was 1899 to 1901, which was in South Africa, and the Dutch and the British collapsed down there. That was one of the first foreign wars that Canadian soldiers fought in. And then there was rival alliances. I'm just going to give you back up a little bit, a little background. The Franco-Prussian War, Otto von Bismarck was one of the Junkers, which was a royal class of Germans, who unified the Prussian provinces into the Empire of Germany, or the Reich. Reich means empire. They fought the French. They captured Alsace and Lorraine, which are two very resource-rich areas between Germany and France. You can look at your map of Europe, which is in the back of your syllabus, that will be helpful for this talk. <coughs> Germany won over through the third, Napoleon the third, and declared the second German Reich. The Field Marshal for Germany, Hel Helmut von Moltke, applied the Industrial Revolution to the military. They used advances in guns where you could sh reload these guns laying down, which was very helpful because before guns needed to be loaded standing up, which made you an easy target. 
These guns could also shoot at a much more rapid pace. They could fire off six rounds for every one round that their opponents could fire off. They used the railroad for the mobilization of troops, and they used uh, the telegraph to spread the information quicker. Someone said that von, uh, that, uh, von Moltke killed war by taking all the fun out of it, by making it serious and deadly. This was the background to World War I. Otto von Bismarck knew that France was going to seek revenge for the humiliation they received in the Franco-Prussian War. So Bismarck made sure that he had alliances with Russia and alliances with England so that if France decided to attack Germany, they would not have any allies. William II, or Wilhelm II, Kaiser Wilhelm, was concerned about how much power Otto von Bismarck was acquiring and dismissed him. Otto von Bismarck was not a good diplomat. He let relations with, with Britain sour because he, started, he wanted his own navy to compete with British, which made the British nervous. He let the agreement with Russia sour. And so France saw this, and they quickly signed an agreement with Russia that says, if Germany attacks you, we'll come to your aid. And if Germany attacks us, you come to our aid. And we'll be able, Russia's up here, Germany's here, France is here, except reverse for you guys. And we'll be able to keep the Germans busy fighting from both sides, and we'll both be safe. They also made this deal with Great Britain, that Britain would join this trifecta of Germany, I mean of Russia, Britain, and France. Now, the Austria, which had been a, the Holy Roman Empire way back into medieval times, had shrunk and then now acquired Hungary as a as kind of a two-state empire. So it was the Austro-Hungary Empire. Right around, if you look at this map of Europe, there's the Balkan states, which are these, these areas down here where it used to be Yugoslavia, but now Croatia and Serbia. These areas were under the Ottoman Turks, who were a Muslim dynasty that, through a series of inept leaders, had greatly weakened. And so these nations were trying to win their independence. Both Russia and Austria-Hungary was interested in the territory of these Balkan nations because it would give them a port on the Mediterranean. These were known as the powder keg of Europe. So in 1914, Archduke Ferdinand, Francis Ferdinand, who was the heir to the Austria-Hungary throne, was visiting Sarajevo, which is the capital of Bosnia. And he, his driver, took a wrong turn, and a Serbian nationalist group shot Arch. 
Duke Francis Ferdinand and his wife. Austria went to Serbia and said, we demand that you repent of this and that you refuse any further talk of anti-Austrian. You allow, don't allow any groups that are talking against Austria. That was a severe demand because there was this nationalist pride that wasn't interested. So they said, we cannot accept these demands. So Austria declared war on Serbia. Germany had told Austria that if you go in and attack Serbia, we will be your ally in battle. I don't know what I just ate. I trust my wife, though. Russia was playing up the fact that these powder keg nations had Slavic background. Russia said, and they also wanted these lands, they said, we'll, we'll be your buddy in the case of war. So when Austria declared war on Serbia, Russia came to Serbia's defense. And because Germany had joined with Austria, Germany now had to declare war against Russia as well. This was a group of cousins. William II, that was on the throne in Germany, was the grandson of Queen Victoria. The king of England at the time was the grandson of Queen Victoria. And the wife of the Russian Tsar was also the granddaughter of Queen Victoria. So these three powers were all cousins. Nicholas II, who was the Tsar of Russia, was the cousin of William II, who was the Kaiser of Germany. And they had a good relationship. They would write these Dear Nicky, Dear Willie letters back and forth. But Germany said to Russia, Russia started mobilizing their troops. This is such a sad <clears throat> comic story, if it wasn't so tragic. Russia started mobilizing their troops, and Germany told Russia, you need to stop mobilizing, which means bringing your, calling in your troops, getting them ready for battle. You need to stop mobilizing in 12 hours, or we're going to declare war on you, out of their agreement. And Russia didn't, and apparently the German diplomat and the Russian, when the German diplomat delivered this telegram, he just started crying and left the room. He knew what was coming. Germany declared war on Russia and Serbia. Now the sad part of all this is the German military plan, because of their fear of France, their plan to mobilize was called the Schleifen plan, which the whole German strategy of mobilization was to swing through Belgium, conquer France, and then make it up to Russia the border between Russia before Russia even got their troops to mobilize. This had been perfected and planned and all the polling station. So Germany could not mobilize their troops without first sending them towards France. Germany told France, please declare neutrality in this war, even though you've made an agreement with Russia, declare neutrality. 
And to prove your neutrality, give us one of your main forts that was on the line. The France said, there's no way we can do this. So Germany declared war on France. Germany started mobilizing, went through Belgium. You can see Germany goes, wanted to go through Belgium and then down through France. This is how the map looks to me, so this is all backwards to you, sorry. But wanted to go through Belgium. They demanded that Belgium not fight. They said, just let our soldiers through your land and whatever damage we pay, we will we'll repay you. And they said, we're not interested. So the first resistance Germany felt was when the Belgium troops, which Belgium had been declared neutral since their independence, started fighting the Germans, and they couldn't believe it. This angered the Germans, and the Germans came through Belgium, burned historic sites, ter terrible deeds. Um, some of the deeds got exaggerated by the Belgian press because, ironically, Belgium owned the Congo, and King Leopold was harvesting rubber down there, and they were committing unbelievable atrocities to the natives of the Congo, including things like rape and cutting off people's hands. And they actually claimed that the Germans were doing to them the same things that they were doing to the people in the Congo. And to this day, they say, think the reports were exaggerated. But anyways, the fact that Germany was committing these atrocities and violating Belgium neutrality, Britain now said, declared war on, on Germany. So we have Austria, Hungary, and Germany, and Italy that wasn't much of a power joined in. They were the, I forget what they called themselves. The Axis was later. But they were the bad guys. We'll just sort <laughs> On the other side, we had Russia, Britain, and France. None of these major powers had really any issue with each other, except for an extreme sense of nationalism. But these minor Balkan states lit a powder keg. Germany went, swept through Belgium, and made it to within 40 miles of Paris when the French were able to start pushing them back into near Belgium. And between the English Channel, you can look at that, and the southern border near France, this whole area became covered with trenches. And for the next four years, there was bloody trench warfare as thousands if not millions of lives in some battles, would be lost all for fighting for a few miles at a time. It just became bigger trenches, more barbed wire. This was the war that introduced the tank for the first time. England developed it. The first tanks malfunctioned. This was the war that introduced chemical warfare and mustard gas. This was the war that introduced the machine gun. After, Russia was able to mobilize much quicker than Germany expected. And so they started winning battles on the eastern side of Germany. But Germany was powerful enough that they were able to chase Russia back deeply into, the, into their territory. Russians were known as fierce fighters, the Cossacks. 
but they were at least 30, 40 years behind industrialization. Their guns, their equipment, their strategies were all based on a different time of warfare. And so because of that, the Russians just got slaughtered. United States joined the war in 1917. Canada, by the way, joined as soon as Britain declared war on Germany. And over the course of the war, I, I think they sent 600,000 men and 64,000 lives were lost in World War I. Some of Canada's, one of Canada's greatest victory was Vimy Ridge, which even though Canada was outgunned and outnumbered, was able to take this strategic ridge and win the victory. And they accomplished more taking of ground per lives lost than any other, anybody else in the war was able to on that day. It was a great day for Canadian history. The United States did not want to join this war. They tried to declare neutrality in 1916. Woodrow Wilson became president and his slogan was, he kept us out of the war. But in 1917, the Germans decoded a telegraph from Germany that was supposed to be headed for Mexico. It was called the Zimmermann Telegraph. In it, the Germans made an agreement with Mexico, or made an offer to Mexico, that if Mexico would join with the Germans in fighting the United States, Germany would give Mexico Texas and New Mexico and Arizona, areas that Mexico had owned 70 years earlier. When this got decoded and the Americans saw this, coupled with the fact that Germany, after so many years of attrition, was starving, because of the blockade that England had put on them, Germany decided they were just going to start submarining in all ships, including American ships. So these factors led the United States to join the war. And when the United States joined the war, they all joined. They basically turned the country into a lean, mean fighting machine. People were growing victory gardens to try to raise food. There was a lot of propaganda of hate towards Germans. Um, sauerkraut was called Liberty Cabbage because anything that had a German name, places like Bismarck were temporarily renamed. Anything that smelled, even German measles was renamed Liberty Measles. <laughs> Once the United States joined the war, Germany just kind of ran out of steam. And Germany signed the armistice on November 11th at 11 a.m., which brought an end to World War I in 1918, over four years after it started. When it started, German troops, they thought this was their chance for glory. It would be over before the leaves fell, had finished falling. But for four years, it went on. And the statistics of of people who died. It killed about 9 million soldiers and maybe that many civilians as well. So 15,000 men died every, on average every day for the four years. It cost $9 million an hour. Just a brutal war. And to wrap it up, at the end of the war, while the soldiers were being crammed into barracks, the United States introduced the Spanish flu, 
It was called the Spanish flu because Spain was the only neutral country. And so as it swept across the world, nobody wanted to admit that they had this flu in their country and Spain was the only neutral country that could make it public that they had this flu. So it be called, became called the Spanish flu. But the Spanish flu, it's hard to estimate, but it killed between 20 and 100 million people worldwide in two years. More people than the Black Death. And the Spanish flu attacked people with healthy immune systems because it turned the immune system on itself. So it was, whereas other times flu killed baby and elderly, this was killing men in the prime of their life. Just a terrifying flu. Germany agreed to the armistice on the understanding that Woodrow Wilson's 14 points, which was a document that he had written and was spreading around Europe, and it called for peace without victory. In other words, what was keeping World War I going was that neither country wanted to be defeated. They, they thought the only way this is worth it is if I can completely smash France or if I can completely smash Germany. It's the only thing that justifies all this loss of life. So Woodrow Wilson was saying, we just need to call an end to it and peace without victory. And that's what Germany thought was going to be followed. But at the Treaty of Versailles, Britain and Germany, I mean Britain and France wanted revenge. And they wrote up terms that were absolutely brutal to Germany. They declared that Germany had to declare sole responsibility for the war. Germany had to give back all their areas of resource-rich areas of Alsace and Lorraine back to France. They were not allowed to have a standing army of more than 100,000 men. They weren't allowed to have an air force. They were only allowed to have, I've listed some other things, but it was just very restrict. Plus, they had to pay for the entire cost of the war. How many billions of dollars did I? $32 billion. This Treaty of Versailles led to World War II because it so upset the German economy. Germany started printing money to try to pay off this war debt. And the inflation was ridiculous. Whereas at the start of the war, I wrote down the statistics somewhere. Uh, it was four German marks was worth one US dollar. Well, by 1923, I think it was three trillion. The government was printing billions of dollars a day. Restaurants were waiting till the end of the meal to write the prices. People were having to be paid twice a day in wheelbarrows full of cash, just insane. This was Germany's attempt to try to pay off the debts. The United States didn't receive its loans back because France and Britain were going to repay the US out of the money that Germany paid them. And so it led to a, a real depression all over Europe. But the United States, on the other hand, entered the Roaring Twenties, where they achieved unbelievable wealth. The automobile, the radio, they had different crazes. It was the first sexual revolution. People, as the industrial age produced more goods than people's actual needs, Advertising started creating fake needs so that people would spend more money. And that created a culture of consumerism. The other thing that became very popular was the stock market. You could make money 
in the stock market. Now, in the 20s, the stock market was not regulated like it is today. Insider, insider trading was happening all the time. So there was people who were, their only industry was to make money in the stock market. And everybody was getting into it, plus there was this new habit where you could buy stock on margin, which is you could, only, you could buy stock and only put 10% put of it down, loan money against the value of your stock. So the value of stock bloated hugely compared to the actual value what was there. And it was just a moment before the bubble burst. And the bubble burst and it led to the Great Depression, which coupled with other things led to a point where it was a quarter of the population was without employment. So once you had that kind of unemployment, people don't have money to buy things. And if people don't have money to buy things, then there's no market to sell things. And if you don't have a market to sell things, then you have to shut down your business and lay off workers. And when more workers are laid off, they have even less money to buy things. So other companies fall apart. And do, I hope I explained that of how it just becomes a vicious cycle and it's so hard to get out of. FDR came in and he tried to bring in government intervention. One way he tried to do it was the Agricultural Adjustment Act. He said the problem for our farmers is that they have produced too many animals, too, many, too much grain, so they're not getting any value for it. So if we can pay farmers to not produce grain, if we can wipe out their livestock and pay them for it, then there's going to be less supply, and, which is going to drive up the prices that farmers get. But people who were starving in the cities couldn't believe that pigs were just being slaughtered and they were paying farmers to not produce. FDR's policies greatly bloated the government. And it's still debated today whether his policies helped or whether they made the Great Depression last longer. But eventually it was World War II that pulled the United States out of the Depression. Let's jump back to 1917, back to the World War I. You can read this about the communism of Russia. This is the rise of the totalitarian states. And these, I'll just go over this six characteristics there in your notes. So one, the use of propaganda to promote ideas and state programs. Two, the use of efficient secret police to arrest or assassinate those who oppose the state and its policies. Three, emphasis upon the goals of the state rather than the individual rights or concerns. And state control of every aspect of life, political, economic, cultural, educational, and religious. Government maintained by force and not accountable to the people for its actions. And the political system led by a powerful dictator. This was what people lived under by about 1930 for most of Europe. Until, until the 90s. Communism in Russia, the Tsars had been very domineering and people had been serfs, which was basically another form of slavery where they would do the work and they wouldn't receive it and they were always hungry. And they marched on Russia in the first revolution in 1905 and they said, they peacefully marched towards it. They said, we want a representative government. Like, 
other people in the world have. And the government troops fired on these, killing the peasants. But Alexander the second, am I on the right, Tsar? Yes. Anyway, he said, I'll give you some form of representative government, but it didn't actually be, wasn't, didn't really listen to the people. So there was a group of radicals, the Mensheviks, who wanted representative government, and the Bolsheviks who wanted communism. They thought Marx's ideas were great. So during the suffering in World War II, the people, the situation just completely got out of hand for Tsar Nicholas. He went to lead his troops into battle. His wife was under the influence of the evil monk Rasputin, who is a fascinating character. Um, People finally rose up. They shot, I mean, they, they caught bodyguards. They shot the bodyguards. Bodyguards, the, the state police joined in the revolution, and this ended the reign of the Romanovs, which had begun in Peter the Great's time. Long story short, they tried to implement communism. You can read this in a little more detail in your notes later. Which. Nikolai Lenin, German, Germany contributed to this because Germany, only, Germany was fighting the war on the Western Front and fighting on the Eastern Front with Russia, and they thought if we could bring an end to the Eastern Front war, we could bring all our troops to the Western Front and we might win. So they actually paid for these exiled intellectuals who were preaching communism and stirring up revolution to come back to Russia. Joseph Nikolai Lenin was one of the revolutionaries who came back. There was a Russian civil war, Reds versus the Whites. The Reds won, and they implemented communism, which collectivized the land. It basically took the land away from the wealthy people and put it in charge of the public, everybody. Russia, I really don't have time to do this justice, but under Nikolai Lenin and then under Joseph Stalin received disastrous results of these policies. When Joseph Stalin came in, he was even more brutal than Nikolai Lenin. Joseph uh, Stalin had the Great Purge, where he killed, I think, almost a million other communists in the party who he didn't trust. His collectivization programs, where anybody who owned their own property in agricultural was persecuted and they were taken away. So the peasants reacted and started burning their own land. Um, at one point, a third of all the homes in Russia had been destroyed either by Stalin's men or the peasants revolting. It led to starvation of, I think, you've got between five and 10 million. Just absolutely terrible what was going on in Russia. Now in Germany, they, right at the end of the World War I, at the Treaty of Versailles, they set up a republic but the country wasn't ready for the republic. Inflation completely ruined the government and people were looking for a change. Hitler joined, who had fought in World War I, joined the National Socialists Party, or Nazi for short. He tried to overthrow, I think it's Munich, and he ended up in jail. While in jail, he wrote My Struggle, or Mein Kampf, which he blamed the problem on the Treaty of Versailles, which he said needs to be overturned. He blamed Jews, he said the Aryan race. And as he, when he came out of 
jail. He became very popular with people, very powerful orator. He led to an increase of the National Socialist Party, the Nazi Party. He demanded to be chancellor, and right before the election, he, Nazis, under the disguise of communists, burned the Reichstag, which was the parliament building, which the Nazis used as an excuse to declare martial law, which was a police state, and Hitler took power as basically the dictator of Germany. Hitler was seen as a savior. He had these four-year plans where he would provide employment for people as they built up the military and as they built the Autobahn. He had a strength through joy program where he made sure that his workers were receiving cheap entertainment and time off and bonuses. Hitler was just viewed as a terrific person who was their savior, who was coming in to save them. In Italy, people were scared of communism on one side, but how there was such extreme, extreme poverty that uh, Benito Mussolini, or El Duce, as he was called, became the dictator, promised to be the savior. There was an uprising in the Spanish Civil War, which both Mussolini and Hitler sent their troops to fight in. It was a kind of a dress rehearsal. It allowed them to test their new technology and new military strategy. So as Hitler gained power, he had a dream of taking over the world. He first of all took over Austria. He did this by installing a Nazi party in Austria. This Nazi party then invited Hitler's troops to come protect them. So Hitler's troops moved in and took Austria. Hitler then wanted Sudetenland, which is in Czechoslovakia. This would be really helpful if you're looking at the map, which was a, had a large German population. At this point, the world leaders, I missed a step too. After World War I, there was the creation of the League of Nations, which was, had no teeth. So it was supposed to eliminate war. But the League of Nations said that Hitler going into these countries was a violation of international treaties. Plus, in 1929, there is a Kellogg-Bryant Act, which made war illegal. Sixty nations signed this, but only three years later, Japan invaded Manchuria. But so, these world leaders, especially Chamberlain, who was the Prime Minister of Germany, and another leader, met with Hitler, and they tried to appease this dictator by saying, we'll just give you Sudetenland. And they went home, and Chamberlain proudly declared to Britain, I have avoid, I've averted war. Winston Churchill said, this beast won't be satisfied that easy. Shortly after appeasement, Hitler rolled in and took all of Czechoslovakia. Then Hitler shocked the world by signing a treaty with Stalin that said, I'll give you, I should be looking at these maps. He basically told Stalin, you can take Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania and whatever they were called back then before the war rewrote the map. But basically, you can have these countries, and I will take Poland and Norway, and they, they made an agreement that they would not attack each other. These two evil men, Stalin and Hitler, made an agreement that they would not attack each other. 
And shortly after that, Hitler invaded Poland in 1939, in September. And Germany had a very powerful air force, the Luftwaffe, which probably sounds a lot scarier if a German says it. And they had these tanks, the Panzer attacks, and they have a blitz where they would just completely overwhelm these areas with a well-defined military and tanks. And Hitler swept through Poland, and then he made it through uh, let's go back to my notes. Norway. In Norway, there was fifth columns who were traitors who lived in Norway who sabotaged the Norwegian resistance. And Hitler made it through that. Hitler then continued to march, and all these Allied troops that once Hitler had invaded Poland, World War II started. Germ France declared war on Germany, and Britain declared war on Germany, and Canada, which by this time had the right to its own foreign policy, also declared war on Germany, sent a bunch of troops to the, uh, I think, Belgium or France. Anyways, as Hitler came through, he swept through these nations much faster, and the Allied troops found themselves in Dunkirk. 350,000 Allied troops trapped with the English Channel on one side and German panzers coming on the other side. And if Hitler had just continued with his troops, he would have decimated a large part of the Allied troops that were available, and the war would have had a dramatic change. But something happened to Hitler's heart where he decided he wanted the Luftwaffe, the Luftwaffe the Luftwaffe to destroy, which is his air force, to wipe out these allies rather than his tanks. There was a week of bad weather that prevented these <coughs> planes from attacking these troops. And during this time, huge convoys were able to ferry 350,000 troops to the safety of England. Later that year in 1940, which is Hitler decided he wanted to invade Britain. And the first thing he was going to do was bomb all the industrial sections, weaken them, and then he was going to bomb the civilians, weaken the resistance, and it would be really easy to conquer Britain. Before this, Hitler, after Dunkirk, took Paris. And so all of Europe was under Hitler's power, or Mussolini's, under the Axis's power. And it was Britain alone against Hitler because the United States had still declared neutrality. Germany set up kind of a puppet government in France. It was known as Vichy France. But the, under Charles de Gaulle, there was still free France who continued to fight. But basically, France had, was now under Germany's control. So he decided to invade England in 1940. Hitler, uh, Churchill gave his famous, this is our finest hour speech, we'll fight them in the air, we'll fight them on the shores and all that. Just really inspired morale. They told people to plan for an, an invasion so that if Germany makes it across the channel, they won't know where to go. So they told people to lie about directions, they tore all the signs off. Apparently more people died from accidents related to the safety measures that Britain took than from all the bombing. And as it was, about 50 or 60,000 people in England died 
from the, the continual bombing that happened all summer over London. Three or four hundred people a night were dying every time these bombs. And apparently in England, there's still bombs that are being found in people's backyards, bombs that fell deep into the earth without going off. Hitler inflicted great damage on Britain, but he was not able to break their will, and he was not able to invade Britain. And this in 1941, Hitler made his biggest blunder of the war. He decided to break his treaty with Russia and invade Russia. This is where the tremendous tragedy of the war kicks into high gear. It had already kicked in, by the way, whenever Germany conquered a territory, it would round up the Jews and send them to concentration camps and their death camps, something the West knew nothing about or refused to listen to the reports. But Hitler started attacking Germany, and Stalin could not believe it right up until the war started that Hitler would do this. And Russians lost millions of lives. But even worse, on the, between the border of Germany and Russia, you see all those countries in there, as, as Russia retreated, they burned the ground behind them so that the Germany wouldn't have resources. So all these people's crops, everything were destroyed. As Germany, as the Nazis came, at first these people declared that these, you're my liberator, and they weren't. Germany made it all the way up to the edge of Moscow and put Leningrad under siege, which is St. Petersburg now. And it cost millions and millions. Over the course of the war, Russia lost about 24 million people, something like 16 million troops. You'll see a lot of variety of numbers on, I've, I've looked up different sites, you see a lot of variety of numbers. So, my numbers are only one of the numbers that are available. But that's just a tremendous loss of life. Compared to Britain lost, I think, about 800,000 total in the war. The United States lost less than half a million. Germany lost, I think, total about 8 million. But so Russia just received an inordinate amount of the blood the United States and the West was providing Russia with a lot of the industry and the military because Russia was very backwards because of communism. Then the winter of 1941 hit and the invasion of Russia stalled and that was the turning point of the war that led to Hitler's downfall just like it led to Napoleon's downfall. So just keep that in the back of your mind. If any of you become world dictators, don't don't attack Russia, especially in the fall, because it won't go well for you. The, the U.S., of course, at this time was still neutral. Then we all know Pearl Harbor happened on December 7, 1941. Um, Frederick, <laughs> FDR, it doesn't stand for Frederick. Franklin Delano Roosevelt declared war on Japan. 
And then Japan, because by this time they were an ally of Japan, declared war on the United States. And for two years, the Allies basically just built strength. The United States did not have soldiers ready to go, and it didn't have planes or tanks or military equipment ready to go. But FDR kicked the whole United States economy into high gear, producing the best planes, ships, tanks, carriers. It was United States industry that ended the Great Depression and also ended up winning the war. So this is a very broad overview of World War II, but there was the Pacific Theater where Pearl Harbor did not go quite as well as Japanese had hoped because a couple carriers were out away from the island. Because of that, a lot of the United States planes and the carriers that were still able to, the United States cracked the Japanese code. Japanese went on a rampage capturing a lot of the South Pacific Islands, including the Philippines. General MacArthur was positioned in the Philippines, but as the Japanese invaded the island, he left, but he said, I will return. Everywhere the Japanese went, it was really brutal oppression for anybody under Japanese rule. But the United States was able to crack the Japanese code, which led to them winning the Battle of Midway. Japan spread themselves way too thin in conquering all these islands, and they just didn't have the manpower or the industry to keep up with this. And so once they started losing battles, this, the tide turned pretty quickly. Stalin and Churchill and Roosevelt met, I think, in Tehran, and Stalin pleaded with people, can you please bring some soldiers onto the continent to take some of the pressure off of the Eastern Front? Because we're just dying mercilessly. Finally, on 1945, before this, the first place the Americans fought was in North Africa. Chased Rommel, chased Italy back up into where they should be Italians, back in their boot. And he, um, it was also during World War II that Italy had invaded Ethiopia, which was not a fair fight because it was tanks and guns against bows and arrows. But, Mussolini was captured and shot. So that was the first Allied success. But then on June 6, 1945, under Dwight Eisen, General Eisenhower, my head is getting tired for statistics. I've got it somewhere in here on the, um, yeah. So on five different Normandy beaches, over 10,000 planes, 5,000 ships, 4,000 smaller ships landed. They had, because they knew that Germany understood their code, they had set up decoys that they were going to invade other parts of the Normandy beaches. But as it was, the storming of the beaches of Normandy was well-gunned um, defenses on the beach. And as people invaded, they just faced heavy gunfire and just so many people died that day, but they were able to storm the beaches of Normandy and the Allies finally had their base. They had a foothold in Europe. And within a few weeks, what I said, they had landed a million men on these lines. And from there, the liberation of Europe began. They freed France, back through these other countries. They almost made it into Germany in the winter of 1945, but there were, or 44, 
there's a major typo in these notes. D-Day is not June 6, 1940. 1944. <laughs> Everybody can remember that. It's 1944. So they were coming. Germany tried one last offensive. Germany was working on a bomb, a new, more powerful weaponry. Hitler, I wrote this down, Hitler thought that this agreement between communism and the free market would crumble. And he honestly thought he had hope. He fought back. The Allied troops bent like a bulge. And at first the Germany had some victory, but the Allied troops closed in on him, and that's why it was called the Battle of the Bulge, which the Allied forces won. They had those three big leaders, Stalin, uh, Churchill and Roosevelt again met, I think this time in, um, somewhere, and they decided, it looked like the Allies had the victory, and this was where they decided that they would, the troops would meet in Berlin, and they would divide Berlin into four segments of Russia, Russia, England, France, and the United States, and they would divide Germany into that. Now this stage of the war, as the Russian troops came back over these areas that Germany had conquered, they received the scorched earth policy again as the German troops retreated. And then these Russians just turned into animals, and the number of rapes that happened during this time is just unbelievable thousands upon thousands, multiple times, gang rapes. Stalin heard about this and said, these guys have been through enough, let them have their fun. People of Europe started praying that the allies from the United States would reach their area first before Russia did. And every time they saw the allied troops come and liberate them, they rejoiced that they were freed by the West and not communism. But the United States held back their men. Hitler at this time committed suicide in his bunker. German radio reported that our valiant leader died at the head of his troops fighting to the end against Bolshevism, which he hadn't. They invaded Berlin after, after a terrible bombing of, of Berlin. Germany just had its life completely bombed out of it. Europe was just a mess of bombed out buildings. All the infrastructure, lines of communication, industry, between the messes as this war swept over Europe, Europe was just a giant mess of destroyed, destroyed buildings. They conquered Berlin. Germany finally surrendered on VE Day, or victory in Europe. Jap the Japan, the Japanese, were still fighting on strongly because they did not want to surrender. In Japanese culture, it was more humiliating to surrender than it was to die in battle. In fact, when they were captured, they would give a false name to, so that their family wouldn't know that they had been captured rather than dying in battle. The Japanese fought tremendously, and right to the end, the kamikazes would commit suicide by crashing their planes into things. The small islands like in Iwo Jima that the US caught, captured, was at a great cost of human life. And the United States was not excited about the prospect of having to invade Japan. 
because the Japanese had this plan in place that basically everybody on the island was going to fight to their death. And some of the projections that the United States was looking at was that it could cost up to a million US lives just to take Japan, and they were weary of war. Franklin Roosevelt had died, I think, somewhere in April in 1945. His successor was Harry Truman, Harry S. Truman. Truman was hand-selected by Roosevelt, who had just won his fourth term, but Truman I mean, didn't receive any of the inside information that Winston um, Franklin Roosevelt was receiving about the war. So when, Truman, when Roosevelt died and Truman suddenly found himself the most powerful man in the world, he had no idea what was going on. While he was in the summit with Stalin, one, the final one before the war, he received news about the atomic bomb. And he told Stalin about it, and Stalin acted surprised like he didn't know about the atomic bomb. But there was Russian spies in this Manhattan Project that was developing the atomic bomb. The United States warned Japan. They sent leaflets saying, get out of the city. And on August 7th, the first atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima. And it killed 70,000 people instantly. Injured 70,000 people more, but it still didn't break Japan. So the United States said, three days later, we're going to drop another atomic bomb on Nagasaki, which ended up killing tens of thousands more. And finally, the emperor of Japan surrendered, and World War II was finally over. It had killed between 60 and 80 million people, and as far as loss of life goes, after Russia, the nation next to experience the most loss of life was China. China lost between 16 and 20 million people during World War II, and we hardly ever hear about the Chinese involvement 